Welcome to another episode of In Your Shoes. I'm Mauro Porcini, PepsiCo's Chief Design Officer. To design the future, you first need to envision what the future can look like. My guest of today is a leader who lives by the saying, time is free, but is also priceless. His vision and passion for creating design-led brands took him from an internal Procter & Gamble to its Chief Design Officer. Of course, there is more to the story. Before returning to PNG. To take on the role of CDO, he received an MBA from the Ohio State University and built Landor's Cincinnati and European divisions. In this episode, we'll talk about a career journey that led him where he is today, and we'll discuss how together business, R&D, and design can create breakthrough brands, products, and experiences that enhance people's lives. Phil Duncan, welcome to In Your Shoes. Wow, I mean, I've, I've been looking forward to this and uh, it's great to spend some time with a colleague. So thank you for the invite to do this. Really looking forward to it. So thanks. So this, this is a special episode because I don't have many opportunities to have a conversation in the podcast with somebody that does the same job that I do in another corporation. We're not many out there, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a new capability, <laughs> a new function. So I'm going to ask you the, the, the question that everybody always asks me. Why does PNG need a chief design officer? What do you do in a company at PNG as chief design officer? What is your role in yeah. your day to day? I get that a lot, as I'm sure you do. Um, and, you know, I think there's two, there's two primary components. I mean, I think we're here to, to grow the business. As a chief design officer, my responsibility is to make sure that we're able to grow our business through foundational things. In our language, that would be superiority of product and package design and communications um, and even retail experiences for our consumer. The other half is also to enable innovation in our company. And so um, as chief design officer, I have a foot in making sure that our organization is well equipped to deliver against the foundational aspects that we know grow and drive our business and superiority of package and product design and commu communications. But then we're also investing smartly in how we're understanding where the consumer is going and meeting them you know, with with unexpected solutions that really delight them and upstream innovation that we hope will resonate and that we can scale globally as we gain momentum and understanding of what was really working for them. So it's a joyous component of two sides of, of a coin to be kind of driving the core business, but then also be accountable for enabling superiority in the innovation spaces as well. So So that's where I start, at least in the conversation. I'm sure I'm anxious to hear how you would answer it as well. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you another question and then All I'm right. going to tell you. Point. <laughs> But I mean, the, the two areas are exactly the same. I, it's innovation and then the experience with our brands and how to grow the business with these two levers. I, now I'm going to ask you the question that they never asked me, but I'm sure that many people think about is, well, that's wonderful, but why do we need designers to do all of this? Isn't it the job of marketing and strategy and our business leaders? What do design do, designers do differently and how they interact with the established functions of marketing, strategy, finance, and all the other functions that work on those um, levers? 
Yeah, it's a great, you know, it is the often sometimes the unspoken, the unspoken aspect, like, okay, I got the foundation, but really, really tell me. And, um, you know, Mara, I, I know you live and breathe this, but I think our contribution is what I'll call the secret weapon of design is we translate strategy and insight and consumer passion and understanding into artifacts, into things. We, we take all those words, all those aspirations, all those you know, consumer um, uh, you know, ideas and translate those into things that then can, you know, get, as we call it, get the job done for consumer, build in habit change, build in delight. So it's, it's really the translation of those ideas into the and manifesting those into artifacts that translate the strategy and then therein can allow us to connect with a consumer. So to your question, yeah, we, we're, we're often seen as a connecting organization at, at P&G. We clearly connect upstream with R&D, but we're, we're deeply engaged also with, you know, the marketing community, the insights, for, you know, the consumer understanding community at Inside P&G. Increasingly over the course of the past five years, I'm sure just like you, IT has become a big friend of ours as well. Um, as we stepped into social and digital commerce and and those spaces as well, so um, yeah, we we have a lot of connecting tissue, if you will, that that's a part of our own DNA. But I think our secret weapon is we translate all those ideas, all those strategy documents, all that chit chat and yak yak into actually <laughs> something that is tangible that the consumer can respond to, right? And that's our that's our gift. I, I love this idea of the connectors and the translators. Uh, mm. I, I really believe both within the company, connectors amongst functions, as well as translator of ideas that are enjoyable, experienceable by our end users, by the people out there. Uh, it's, it's so powerful. You mentioned IT, the world of digital. Uh, how design and the way we build brands has been evolving in the past few years. You you join, you rejoin PNG in two thousand and eight. Right. By the way, an interesting year to join a multinational yeah. corporation in the middle of a big financial crisis. But yes. how did the world change from two thousand and eight to today, and how marketing, branding, and design changed? And I think the digital component is a big driver of that change. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you're very insightful. I, I joined the company at a time when, um, or rejoined, as you, as you rightfully said, I rejoined at a point where we too were coming to what I will call the end of an S-curve of how we grew our business. Um, because we went through a period of four or five years of rather um, lackluster results. Certainly not what we had historically um provided, you know, our investors, our consumers, um, uh, and frankly, posting one, two, two and a half percent growth for four or five years, um, we really had to step back and re-examine how we were innovating, um, you know, how we were experimenting and learning with the consumer. So we embraced things. We, we were looking out, you know, to Silicon Valley to a certain degree to get some inspiration um, we were understanding the principles of lean innovation, which played directly to the strengths of design. 
you know, um, you know, imagining what's possible, rapid prototyping of ideas, getting to the consumer quickly with experiments to understand what's working with them. And then from that, you know, transactional learning with consumer, you know, iterating and modifying the ideas. So that was a, a big part of how we too then began to understand what was our role in the company. Ten years ago, we, we were solidly, you know, embedded and helping change the culture more creative. But our foundational work was really a core to our work, exceptional product and package design, which I love and is still a big part of our core. But as we began to understand that the business dynamic and the con- context around us was dramatically shifting, we've been on a big transformation um, in design at P&G. And in particularly, and I'll, I'll acknowledge watching you and watching the PepsiCo team, we were largely a design management and leadership organization. We did a lot of work with wonderful external partners, um, but probably upwards of 80 to 90% of our work happened externally. We have gone on a massive transformation over the course of the past seven, five, seven years, where today we are, we are a design leadership and designing organization where probably 75% of our total, call it design needs, are fulfilled by teams internally to our organization. And I think that was in direct response to providing our business partners with greater agility, the need to get into greater, to, to, to faster and better experiments. Um, and a, a big part of the driving force of that was the integration of technologies that have allowed us to get out to the consumer faster, read what's resonating, and then respond quickly to how we might modify those ideas. So it's been a it's been a driving force, a big change, and you know we can, I'm sure we'll come and talk about designs, you know, transferable skills into spaces like the metaverse and whatever, all of which we're experimenting in. But I'd say you know that's that's the journey we've been on in the past five to seven years has really foundationally been transformed by both how we were working and the technology influences in terms of the context in which our company needed to compete and win. So, so many parallels with, with our reality, but uh, mm. this, this idea of agility, flexibility, adaptability, speed, and getting closer and closer to consumers and users, to society, to the people out there, it's, it's for sure a common theme. And I think for us, Mauro, I won't speak for you, but I think, you know, if I go back 15 years or so, I think designers might have been a little less adept at integrating this kind of data into their creative work. And I'm a big fan of putting, putting data and insight ever closer to the creation process so that you do understand who you're designing for, how they're responding to the work. Because as good as we might be, um, you know, we go into work with our biases, what, what we think will work. Do we really know what will work? I've got instinct, I've got skill, I've got mastery, I've got, you know, passion. But do I fundamentally know what will absolutely work with the consumer? Not until I put it in front of them and understand what really is resonating with them. And that's been a big part of the change. So So let me ask you something Mm -hmm. that I think is one of the biggest challenge of any designer, design organization and company out there when innovating. Uh, 
on one extreme, there is design in the dark. I mean, you just design on the base of your intuition, your taste, your, um, what you think is right. On the other side, there is the other extreme. When you design just on the base of what your consumers are telling you to do. And often you end up creating average products, average solutions, uh, something that everybody likes, but nobody really loves. So how do you find, how you do you strike you, but I'm talking now about your team, because the problem is then how to build that kind of approach and culture within a organization at scale. How do you strike the right balance between intuition, creativity, giving people what they, what they don't even know that they want, and on the other side, the ability to listen to them and to take in consideration what they tell you. Uh, so how do you filter that and how you balance those two dimensions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're asking kind of the million-dollar design <laughs> yes. question, right? And, or maybe the $10 million design question. I do see it. I've, I've, I tell this to a lot, to particularly our both design teams and our innovation teams, that I think really great design work and really great innovation work is a unique combination of that which is known to the consumer so that they can evaluate it. They can put it in the right context. Oh, I use that for this. But it also has a certain degree and amount of, of mystery and intrigue and interest that pulls them in. So you get both the head and the heart on the solution so they can still understand the context of, oh, that's a skincare product or that's a, you know, and this is in our world, right? But there's something really unique and interesting and different about it. And I want to learn more. And I think it is that unique combination. Um, and when I see a team really find and strike that balance, which along that continuum can be really different based upon the initiative, the category, which is competing, you know, what have you. Funny story, if I may tell you, um, and I tell it a lot, a lot in this space because I too, just like you, I'm sure get this question a fair amount. We were working on a product um, in Asia and it's a femcare product, a, a menstrual pad product for young teens in China. And uh, the, the initiative team went out and learned a lot about the consumer and and, you know, there was an underlying cuteness factor that was important for young Chinese girls and, and the whole iconography and, and um, you, know, uh, you know, Kitty, uh, oh, what's the Hello, Hello Kitty? Kitty. Was yeah. it in, I mean, so, so, so the team came back to me with some, here's, here's our idea that we're, that we're going with and is really resonating with consumers. And, and I mean, Mauro, it was, the name of the product was... Uh, um, whisper or always uh, koala hoo hoo. <laughs> the the pad itself was shaped with like little koala ears and little you know bare arms that would fold around you know the panty. Um, the package was was done with like unbelievable amounts of glitter on it and with this giant koala bear. I mean. Every design, you know, you know, element in my body was like, oh my God, this is like breaking every aesthetic rule of design I could possibly imagine. <laughs> and of course, you know, they put it out in the marketplace and the thing goes like gangbusters and grows like crazy. And it just taught me a really valuable lesson that I'm not a young girl sitting in China. I don't know 
what might resonate with her. I have instinct, I have passion, I have mastery. So finding and finding that right balance, and then importantly, as leaders, like I'm sure you do, creating that environment that allows you to to um, kind of modulate between your mastery and your listening and your empathy for the consumer and your and your challenge of maybe presenting to them something that they could not imagine themselves, you know, owning, having, integrating into their life, um, you know, is, is, I think is, is the, the fundamental balance that we're always trying to strike. There is also another important lesson in the story you just shared. You kept an open mind, both during the process. And then also once the product was out there and eventually you're like, oh no, what are we doing? But then you saw the results and instead of keeping saying that's the wrong product, you're like, you know what? I learned something out of it. And this is not that common in the design world, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. not even just in design, also in other professional communities. You know, we know it, we know what is right. And and even if it works out there, it's wrong anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big believer in keeping your curiosity high and your capacity to always learn. And I I think demonstrating that um, as a leader to your team is a really important quality. Of course, I could have sat there and critiqued that and said, you know, you can't launch that or, you know, whatever. But I had to acknowledge the fact that you, the team was way closer to the consumer than I ever would be, ever. And um, so, and then I said, well, let's learn. Let's see what works, you know. And, and, uh, and I think that's been, I hope it's my team would tell me a, a, a hallmark of, my leadership approach to keep my curiosity high, keep my empathy for the consumer as well as for our, our designers high and the challenges that they face to come up with really great solutions. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a valuable life lesson for any organization or function yeah. design or otherwise. Yeah. There is one element though, that I'm sure you, you believe in too, as well. Uh, you may not understand a specific consumer and, and their backgrounds. And eventually you may end up creating an iconographic, like in this, in this specific case that resonates to them and not to you personally. Mm. But no matter what you do, we should always protect a certain level of design sophistication, aesthetic sophistication. And this is where I think we have a role. I mean, is a, is a, is a role to elevate the sophistication of that graphic design, industrial design execution and mass market level. Uh, Our friends in Target, for instance, in the Target Corporation, over the years, in the past 20, 30 years, have been demonstrating that you could bring design to the masses in the United States and be successful by doing that. I don't know how many times when I started to work with uh, big corporations. And then in this specific case with big American corporations, I had colleagues telling me, ah, you know, that's your design aesthetic or that's yeah. your Italian aesthetic. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then one by one, I started to see a variety of different products in the mass market changing the game. And then even a retailer like Target embracing design and, and growing through design. So I think we have a a responsibility as designers in these companies to try to help elevating the design sophistication of anything we do 
And then we need to be flexible, you know, on the base of what our consumers desire and want as well. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say it better. I, I often look at categories outside of our categories to say, wow, look, look at how they're integrating technology. That's going to reset the bar for how we need to inter- you know, integrate technology or so. And, um, you know, even looking at what, you, what you've done across your portfolio, because um, I think there are, you've got a lot of brands that need to, you know, meet, meet a mass population but done in a way where the aesthetic is high. And um, let's not underplay that importance that the consumer will tell you that that matters to them, you know, regardless of whatever economic level they may be. You know, we too, we have, a, you know, in our, in our portfolio, we have, we have brown, brawn, whatever, whatever, however you would like to pronounce that. And, you know, one of the reasons why our grooming business is growing today um, at the rate that it is, is because I think they too have understood and appreciated how a brawn aesthetic can be much more integral to the total portfolio across all of Gillette and Venus and what have you. So I couldn't agree with you more on the the, the aesthetic thing that we own and, and, and need to demonstrate how it can grow business across any category um, because that's that's been demonstrated for us in spades. When you were describing your role, you mentioned innovation as one of the two mm. pillars of what you do. And for us designers, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, of course, design, innovation, that's what we do. But, mm. but it's less obvious to the business world. So mm. what does it mean, design, innovation at P&G? How do you explain what designers do in innovation to your business colleagues within the company and then to the world outside? It's a great question. Um, and it's very timely. We've just been having a lot of these conversations, particularly as we've been investing in the space of UX and UI designers um, in our upstream spaces, particularly because they often come to the table to help what would fundamentally start out to be our R&D organization who have really understood the consumer need, the tension in their life, come up with a, a really terrific and, and, and arguably superior solution for said challenge or said problem. Um, and we go deep with them to build what I will call the minimum viable prototype, um, minimal viable brand prototype that encompasses everything to put the proposition together. Anymore, it's not enough just to do the, you know, I'll call it the prototype of the new diaper or whatever. We're really there as designers to quickly put the whole prototype together so that the consumer can evaluate with us on a more holistic basis on the power of the idea, the the strength of the product proposition. So our teams are there to help our, particularly our R&D, but often increasingly IT teams, to bring their proposition to life in totality so that we can go get that consumer understanding and that consumer learning um, way, way before we're into scaling, way before even our marketers, you know, we've got some great marketers who are in that space, but they tend to come on board a little bit after the, the depth of the R&D and then design partnership has explored the, the idea to its fullest. 
And connected to this, partially, there is another initiative that you, you created and you are leading from what I understand, that is PNG Ventures, uh, right? So again, you, you, you think about the world ventures, you think about finance, you think about the business world, and instead it's a designer that somehow is leading or co-leading. I don't know exactly how you're running this inside your organization. Can you tell us more about PNG Ventures. Yeah, sure. Um, and and PNG Ventures was uh, there were three founders to be to be clear: myself and a, and a fabulous business leader, marketer, if you will, and R and D. The three of us were asked by our CEO to kind of found this group to be original founders, if you will. And really, the intent was to bring the best of the entrepreneurial world with the best of P&G together in a unique organization that could find new business opportunities where we were not currently either competing or winning. And in particular, use a very external facing um, construct to demonstrate to um, the entrepreneurial world that we were open for business. Here were our big challenges. Um, We kind of opened up the, the, the portfolio of technologies that we felt like we had, but also that we were deficient in to see if people were out there that could kind of compete and complete some of our, our innovation desires and then find unique partnerships where we could, again, embrace what I will call an entrepreneurial um, approach to a broad portfolio of ideas that we experiment with we push them down the you know the funnel to get to incubate, if you will, see if we can grow those ideas to you know a couple million dollars in size, and then determine do we ship them out to be you know accelerated further, and then with a buyback opportunity, or do we transition them to our going businesses? So really, Mauro is about putting you know getting more at bats um, uh, to use a bad baseball analogy. Um, more, maybe more swings, um, uh, because we, we understood the mechanism of innovation, which was we needed to be better at better experimentation and putting more ideas out there in a rigorous way, not in a, you know, whatever. So we went to, we went deep into, um, lean innovation principles, um, uh, developed a program called growth works. And ventures became kind of the point of the spear of that construct for the entire company. Um, today, was, you, yeah. you see, sorry, today no, you no. see growth works and or upstream innovation studios in every single one of our going businesses now as well, like, you know, in femcare and beauty care and in grooming and whatnot. So it's been a, a big transformation for us and, I was fortunate to be on the ground floor of that and getting that up and going and, and assessing the portfolio and pushing something forward. And uh, I learned a lot. And, and of course, as you said earlier, it's a natural place for designers to, to gravitate towards. Was that the evolution of what I remember reading about PNG that what you called open innovation? Was AG Laugh the open innovation? Is that connected to that? Is the evolution of that? It is absolutely, and and AG was the one who put the three of us together and said, I want you to do this. And you're absolutely right. It was a construct of, I think he began as much as as we have amazing R&D in the company, 
the the ability for us to alone understand and meet the consumer demands as they were magnifying and diversifying, I think we began to understand that we can't go that alone and be as fast and as agile and complete in our solutions as possible. So yes, we've we've kind of opened up to say we're open for business and um, and open innovation, connect and develop, as we called it, was a, a key driver of that um, beginning strategy. And ventures was just another cog in the in that, if you will, machine that was set up. So yes, your insight there is is spot on. Connected to this innovation, creation of new products, as designers, by definition, we create products or solutions in general to people's needs and wants. And the moment you do that, you have, once again, by definition, a negative impact on the environment. The best mm. solution would be the one you don't design, you don't create, and you don't produce. You just reuse what you already have. Mm -hmm. So, and then if you do that from a multinational corporation, <laughs> the scale of that impact is pretty big. Mm -hmm. How do you face the pressing challenge of creating more sustainable products in our industries? Yeah, and I, you know, I'd, I'd love to gain some some insight from you on this as well. Um, we're on a journey. Um, but it's a powerful and important one because, as you say, we understand our role in changing the outcome for our planet. And so um, our mantra is to continue to deliver superiority for the consumer in our product, in our package, but done, through, done by embedded um, sustainable solutions that really change the outcome. And we have a term that we use, Meryl, called constructive disruption. So we're really looking at ways to disrupt the categories that we're in, um, but also to, you know, frankly, continue to, um, you know, continue to drive the base foundation of the proposition. But what are ways for us to embed uh, innovative solutions that drive sustainability? One of the one of the um, examples that I had shared with you in, in the context of some of the work that inspires me over the course of the past decade is a brand that we call EC30. So it's environmentally clean for 2030, but EC30 for short. And it was the brainchild of one of our upstream R&D you know, uh, team leaders, team members, who more or less was inspired by the construct of cotton candy, <laughs> where you pour a liquid in a machine and it becomes a spun fiber. And applied that to a lot of our products, liquid detergent being one in particular. And so um, we began to understand that through this spun fiber technology, not only could we create a superior product solution, but a far more sustainable one because we weren't embedding, you know, water. We weren't putting in, you know, uh, shipping it in plastics. We weren't, um, you know, we were disrupting our, the very categories that had grown our business. And so we're fully committed to finding solutions in this space. But I'm sure just like you, um, the solutions are vast and broad. The implications of embedding them can be either costly or not. Um, and understanding the true impact that you're either trying to affect positively or, you know, certainly not negatively takes a depth of education and awareness and understanding for you to really be driving solution 
So it's um it's an all on construct. Every single one of our categories is is laser focused on maintaining their superiority, yet um, integrating much more sustainable solutions within that. And that we believe will be the secret to to winning, continuing our growth, yet also kind of as we say, delivering the good. What are you doing to build awareness and the right skills in your own team around this specific topic? Making sure that we've got an external focus. I'm sure just like you on alternate materials that are being produced um, that could that could provide us some real breakthrough in either packaging or product material pieces. Um, we have a, a huge forum that where we bring a lot of our passionate designers together. We, we call these community of practices or community of experts. So we have a design, sustainable design community of practice that has, you know, upwards of 150 to 200 designers who participate in monthly conversations to share, you know, how they're looking at alternate materials. So that, that, that ability for us to, to, take an idea that, or a solution that might be working in one category and think about how it could work in another. Um, you know, we, we're, we work extremely closely with our, our upstream, what we call package development team, who are constantly looking at new materials and qualifying them for us. Uh, we're, we're deeply embedded with our R&D teams who are, you know, frankly, examining every aspect of, of our product profiles. So, You know, it's a it's a multifaceted, multi-pronged strategy. But um, I just like you, I'm sure this is a space that is the designers are incredibly passionate about um, uh, solving for. Yeah. Switching topic, going into culture and your journey. Mm. You are one of those design star in the in the CPG system. You're leading design in a big corporation, and there are many designers out there, many many designers out there that are thinking, "How can I become Phil? How can I become the chief design officer of a corporation?" What's your advice to them today, both in terms of soft skills, behavior, mindset, as well as hard skill? What do they need to learn in the design world, outside of the design world? You, imagine you're talking now to a young designer that is starting his journey and want to become Phil in PNG, the CDO. Or, or become Mauro. Oh, so Mauro. I, <laughs> come on. This is a conversation. Um, Uh, and again, I feel like I'm answering, but I, I, I need, I need the rest of the, the reciprocity here. But, um, <laughs> anyway, um, we'll, we'll do a podcast where you interview me. Right. <laughs> I, okay. I'm going to hold you to that. Um, anyway, I mean, it's hard to talk about on some level. I, I, um, I feel incredibly privileged to be where I am, um, and, and fortunate. And yes, I worked hard for it, but I'm also surrounded by, amazing team members who um, enable me and and who teach me and who encourage me and call me out when I haven't done something right. So as much as I answer this question, I hope I'm answering it for all for my team members and so many people around me who have mentored me and helped me. But, you know, if I could think off the cuff of a few things that have been successful, you know, for me, um, I, I do think having a really strong Uh, foundational mastery in design, right? Um, that might sound, you know, cliche, but 
um, uh, that has served me well. Interestingly, in my job, it has served me well that I that I have a variety of, of passions and spaces that have also been applicable to my work. Interestingly, I in I started out in the art in architectural programs in school, and I do a lot of experience building about translating the company into things like our Olympic program or into consumer electronics show. I'm also deeply engaged in. Um, a lot of the environment and space design of our company for our employees that has served me, you know, well to have not only a foundation of mastery in what I'd call core, you know, design work, but a few wings where I've got just enough knowledge to be dangerous, um, <laughs> but also really enjoy. So that has served me well. Um, I've learned the language of how to balance the language of business and the language of design um, would be another. Uh, I think many designers hope that when they show something, they people will just say, "Oh, I so love that. Let's let's go with it." But that's often, as you know, not nearly sufficient. So while we I talk about our design team not losing what makes them unique in the company, but understanding that their influence comes by having deep empathy and understanding for those in the room with you, which are often your business partners. So how you translate the passion that you have for the solution that you've developed um, into um, how that will grow the business and the language of business is equally important, particularly at our levels in, in the organization. The last thing I will say just really quickly is I think I've stepped in. I've taken a few opportunities that have come to me that I pushed me extensively. Um, and I've relied upon my, my personal design background to enable me in that I've brought our amazing design team with me, but I've also been open to bringing and learning from so many other kind of areas of the company that have enabled me to continue to demonstrate and lead in value creation for the company. And, and sometimes that's a bit of a risk. Um, but through that, I come. I think comes great growth, and then through that growth comes the confidence um, that you can repeat that and and keep going and demonstrate. You know, again, great value to the organization. So, I don't know if that's you know. I I will also reiterate just curiosity, empathy, um, listening are I think are really important skills. I'm sure, just like you. I spend probably a good a third of my time on developing people and spending time with them and, and enabling them and helping them, um, which I gain a lot of personal energy around, but it also is, it's a commitment. It takes a lot of work to do that. So. Wonderful. No, I, I, I agree <laughs> with all points, uh, <laughs> especially the last part of what you share, the soft skills and that are so, so important and, and often they're not mentioned. People don't think about it. You know, you talk about design, you talk about the processes, the ways of working and then specific kind of hard skills that you need to have. And, and the, the reality is that at the end of the day, the difference is made by 
the way you think, the way you connect, the way you feel uh, is so, so important in our world. In, in your professional journey, you started in PNG as an intern and then you got out, you went to Landor, you, you, I read <laughs> that you are the youngest managing director, you built the capability in Cincinnati and then you went back to PNG. What's the difference uh, of being a designer in a corporation versus being a designer in an agency? I get that question a fair amount too. <laughs> so I'm prepared. I'm kidding. Um, and oh, by the way, I just want to make sure that you know that I, that I, in my Landor journey, I was in Paris for a few years. So if I have any small sense of style or sophistication, it's because of my two years in Europe. So <laughs> anyway, um, uh, um, well, let's see. The question was... <laughs> uh, so agency and corporation, oh, right. what's the difference being a designer in the two? Yeah, yeah. Just... Sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, I, and in simple terms, I became a really good sprinter in the agency and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a really good long distance runner at P&G. <laughs> uh, I love that so, met- metaphor. <laughs> so I, you know, I, you know, in the agency world, you're you're constantly like it's the pitch the next day, win the client with the presentation, is the work ready, you know, um, and then the celebration afterward, and we won the client or you know whatever. So the the reins of emotion and and the puts and calls and the, maybe a little bit of the strain have have higher undulation points, right? Um, and you know, we're a little bit more of a distance runner. We still have the undulating points. And I think part of our job as leaders, I know you do this, is to, you know, push a little of the enthusiasm at times and or push a little bit of the, we've got work to do. We're not meeting the standard. So, so at times I feel what's, what's, I feel very blessed to have is experiences in both spaces so that I can pull from both. Um, and push enthusiasm and reward and happiness and joy when we do great work at times, when sometimes at a, inside of a you know big company maybe people wouldn't do that as frequently or that maybe that's the maybe that's not seen as the best behavior. But also at times lean in and go, all right, like this work has not this this work has sucked. <laughs> that doesn't happen often, but you know, we need to, we need to step up our game, right? And and that comes, I think that. The spirit of that comes from the best parts of agency world integrated in the best parts of working in this company. So, and you know, Mara, I came, I came back to PNG. I'd be curious to hear your answer at some point on this too. But I, I came to PNG early after getting my MBA. I worked in brand management for four or five years. I missed my creative soul, if you will. I left to go to Landor for 13, 14 years, came back to P&G, and I've been in this role now, crazy, 14, almost 15 years. Um, so I guess there is a little bit to be said for, you know, longevity and, and keeping yourself, you know, young through learning and empathy and, and yet also appreciating the amazing people that you have, you know, around you. But I came back to P&G because two things. I wanted to learn again, and I wanted to have an impact. I wanted to get closer to the, the decision points where I felt like design could change the outcome for the world. And that might sound big, but that's why I came back. 
look, I had other questions to ask you, but this is a wonderful closing. <laughs> we could go on and on and on to talk for hours, but I, it's something I always share as well. And when I share it, I'm thinking, well, maybe people think that I'm megalonic. I, I, I don't know the word exactly in English, but I'm thinking too big. And I, But that's the truth. I mean, at the end of the day, as designers, we do touch the life of people every day. In a way or the other, we have moments of pleasure, convenience, of safety, of fun, depending on the categories we, we play with. And when we work with the scale of these companies, then the impact, as I said earlier, in the positive and eventually, unfortunately, yeah. also in the negative, is big. And so the idea that we are contributing to change the world is pretty real. And that's why I think with that come the huge, huge responsibility that we really need to feel of changing the world for the better, for, for good, in the right direction. And, and I think as designers at the end of the day and as business leaders, you know, anybody creating new products and new brands, what should drive us? If you ladder up, ladder up, ladder up, if you arrive to the root cause as the philosophers used to do of everything mm. we do, we should be driven by creating happiness in society. If you think about the Maslow pyramid from the physiological needs, safety, yeah. all the way up to, uh, all the way to transcendence that Maslow had at the very end of his life, all those needs and wants are nothing else than needs and wants that lead you to what we call happiness. And so we should be all united, all around the world, all designers around the world, by this idea that you just share of having an impact in the world and creating eventually a better world because we can do it. We, we are can. doing it. And, and if we are all united by this, we're going to change this world for better. It, it is real. And I, I mean, you know, I couldn't agree more with your assessment and your passion for this. And, and the world could use a little more happiness right now, right? So the responsibility is big, the opportunity is big, and, and the privilege to do it is um, something that I don't, is not lost on me at all, at all. Even better closing. Thank you so much, Phil, for <laughs> being with us today. It's yeah, been man, a yeah. pleasure to talk with you. We need chapter two of this conversation for sure. I owe you a few answers, a few times you asked me, what's your point of view? We'll find a platform to have a conversation where I can share my answers as well. But today you were our guest. You did wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all your insights, your passion, your vision. Uh, I mean, Mara, you know, you've you've been a model for me for for our organization. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that we've like talked about. I wonder how I wonder how they're managing you know, to connect with their business and bring in designers. And so um, I thank you for always being, a, a, you know, a, even though we haven't connected nearly as much as I would like, always being a beacon for me. Um, it, it means a lot. And I, I, I appreciate you. And, um, you know, and I will, I will hold you to, I need to learn a little bit from you as well. So I'll hold you to a dinner, a fabulous Italian dinner in New York soon exactly. um, where I get to learn a little more. Okay. <laughs> Can't wait to take you to my favorite Italian restaurant in New York. <laughs> I'm in. And, uh, and you can show me some pictures of Beatrice. Oh my gosh. Cutie, cutie. Yeah. Uh, the joy of my life. I, 
I have her on my phone, uh, on my, sorry, of course, on my phone, on my, even on my Apple watch. Now I never wanted to have a picture of somebody, <laughs> my Apple watch, but with Beatrice, with my little baby, I did that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. It's just adorable. Congratulations. And I need to send, I need to send you some pampers. <laughs> oh yeah. I would love to. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, Phil. All right. Thank you, Marlon. Thank you to their team. I appreciate you all. You're all helping me uh, get myself technically ready here. So, all right. Cheers. Thank Good you. to see you. Bye. <laughs>